David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord. According to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. And on his own skull, his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. May the Lord bless the hearing and reading of his word this day. A few years ago... I worked as a uh, theology teacher at an international boarding school. Now, getting teenagers to be interested in the deep and focused study of who the Lord is uh, can indeed be a very difficult task by nature, I'm sure you might be able to assume. Now, seeking to do so with a primarily unbelieving student base who does not speak English as their first language, also has a healthy portion of difficulty to it. I recall one time as I was sitting in a teacher training workshop at the school where, uh, where I was working, the principal stood up and she began sharing away that she was able to get a confession out of a student who was involved in some unsavory activity. She uh, sat the young man down and began explaining to him what several people had told her about what he had done. She listed off rule after rule that she was certain he had broken. Until finally, she told this boy that she also had first-hand witnesses testifying to something that she knew for certain he did not do. 
But at this accusation, the boy began to fight. He began to yell and to argue. And so the principal asked him gently why he was getting upset. To which he replied, because I didn't actually do that one. Slander. Slander has a way of deeply cutting into our sense of being wronged. Few things tend to light the torch of retaliation in the heart of man than being accused of what he has not done. Thus today, as we open up Psalm 7, we are going to hear from God's word about a response of God's perspective on what man's response is to be when he finds himself at the wrong end of accusation that are untrue, at the wrong end of slander. So let us go first to the title of this psalm. Some psalms have titles, some do not. Some are helpful, some are not. This one happens to be quite helpful. So if you look in your Bible at the title of Psalm chapter 7, not chapter, Psalm 7, and here's what we read, a Shigayon of David. I have no idea if that's how you pronounce it. That's why I've heard someone else pronounce it, so that's how I will pronounce it. You want to argue with me? I will not argue back. I do not know. A Shigayon of David. First thing we have to ask is, what is a Shigayon? To which I respond, I have no idea. In fact, no one has any idea. We do not know. The best guess that we can kind of comprehend or come up with is that it's some form of musical term that guides the original audience to understand how David sang this psalm to the Lord. Next up, we look at what the psalm is concerned with. It's concerned with showing David's response to words that were spoken by a man named Cush. We'll see later in this psalm that the words have referenced that are referenced here are in fact a form of wicked slander. They are words that are indeed untrue. In verses 3 and 4 we'll even see a possible description of some of these slanderous and derogatory claims against David from Cush. Therefore we know that the context of the psalm will be amidst David's suffering in slander. Well, then, who, who is Cush, we ask? Once again, I must say, I do not know. In fact, he is not mentioned anywhere else in the entirety of Scripture. Most likely, he is one of the myriads of men in David's lifetime that made his days a waking nightmare. The Psalms title, though, does give us one little helpful detail here. When he labels Cush, a Benjaminite. You might ask, why is that important? Well, because the Benjamite, Benjaminites throughout the lifespan of David were a people who came, who brought about Israel's first king, King Saul. The throne then, when lost by Saul, was handed over to the line of David. But it seems as though throughout the expanse of David's life, the Benjaminites never seemed to quite to lose the understanding of their preference of their royal kinsman, Saul. 
So through the entire lifetime of David, the Benjaminites were often at the center when there was some form of aggravation throughout Israel or some kind of large coup. And so we see that Cush's attacks, his slanders, whoever might they be, these were all but par for the course. These were about a standard by which David found himself in dire straits. So, we will hear then in this psalm his response. We will hear throughout this psalm how David takes refuge in the midst of slander in the most high. And what I pray that through this psalm we might see that the only safe refuge in the midst of trial and slander is in the judgment of the Most High. David's going to lead us through this in four steps. I will give them to you now for those of you who like to read and, and, uh, and go back in your notes and find some kind of flow of thought. Number one, we will see David plead for deliverance in verses one and two. We will see David then plead his innocence in verses 3 through 5. Then we will see David plead for God's judgment in verses 6 through 9. And David then will proclaim his confidence in God's righteous judgment in verses 10 through 17. So there they are, that is the basic structure that David will be stepping through as he takes refuge in the Most High God. Then turn your attention with me to verses 1 and 2, and we will see what David does first. When slander has come against him, he turns to the Lord for refuge. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Before he even gets out of the gate of the psalm, he turns right to where he will be putting his hope. What's interesting and unique about this is, in fact, the way David cries out to the Lord. The title that he uses has not been used yet in the psalms. He says, O Lord, my God. This is not a cry of one who is far from the Lord, suddenly finding themselves surrounded by danger. This is, in fact, a title of the Lord God that conveys both a submissive reverence and a deep, personal intimacy. O oh Lord, my God. David, in the midst of deep, aggressive slander, begins by putting his hope, his refuge in the Lord God. But this is not some big, rough and tough, self-willed claim that ignores his fears, ignores his difficulty, and just thinks that if he were trusting the Lord, he would never feel sad nor anxious. For he immediately follows his claim with pleading, Oh Lord my God, save me. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. What an image. 
we see here for a moment the depth of David's suffering. There's a lot of suffering in this world, is there not? And much suffering has been particularly promised to those who seek to follow the Lord. The world has actually been quite creative in how it has sought to make good on Christ's promise that the servant is not greater than the master in John 15, 18. The world has used flames, wild beasts, wrecks, swords, stones, sticks, legal oppression and opposition, torments and tortures of almost every kind imaginable. Yet, here we see a description of David's suffering, and he suffers by nothing more than the tongue of the enemy. He uses a graphic description here, as though his soul feels mangled and ripped apart, ripped to shreds in the jaws of a merciless lion. The image of a terrible wild beast tearing a lamb in pieces has actually been familiar to David from his boyhood as he would stand in the field shepherding over his sheep. This was an image he was well aware of and a description he would be all too familiar with. David is familiar with vivid destruction. And he makes clear here that the tongue is no gentle persecutor for those who live godly lives out of a worshipful fear of the Lord. Rather, he agrees with the Apostle James's claims that the tongue is a ruthless evil set on fire by hell itself. Oh, we see a window into a depth of suffering that is promised to believers of all ages. As we read in John 6, 22 through 23, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. We hear right now the very words of one of those prophets who experienced such scorn. As surely as the sun strikes the world in such a way that shadows cling to every towering object, so it is with those who follow the Lord. Those that live in the light will be clung to by the slanders of wicked men. Though David's agony is horrifying and his pursuers merciless, yet we will see that he sets his refuge, his hiding place, his safety in the Lord my God. Well, let's look then as David pleads his innocence. Verses 3 through 5. David begins then to plead, O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Here we see some of the possible details of the slander by which David was being maligned. 
this Cush is claiming that David has repaid kindness to him with evil. That he has pursued without provocation his enemies. And David now stands claiming his innocence in this manner. To these accusations. He's not claiming that he stands as an innocent and righteous man before the holy Lord God. He is admitting the falsehood of these specific slanders that have been spoken about him. We, in fact, see in two, two different instances, and there are actually far more, but in two specific instances, at two different times, he had opportunity to strike his enemy who was pursuing his life dead. And yet he refrained, for he would not harm God's anointed king, regardless of how Saul taunted him. This is educational, isn't it not? Is it not? What a great comfort is the Lord as a refuge to those who stand innocent of the claims of the wicked. An old Puritan named David Dixon said this, Though innocence cannot exempt a man from being unjustly slandered, yet it will furnish him with a good conscience and much boldness in the particular before God. The reason that David is able to have such bold confidence in the judgment of the Lord in these coming verses is because he stands with a clear conscience. Therefore, when he stands before this judge and he cries out for justice, he does not call upon a reckoning upon his own head. He stands clear of conscience. Yet, David understands he stays falsely accused. He knows it. And he cries out, Lord, search me. Probe me deep, search my heart, see, hear my innocence according to these claims. Not only this, but he even goes so far as to curse himself should he be found guilty in any way of those things of which he's being blamed. In fact, he stands on the side of righteousness here. He says, if I am guilty of these things, then please, by all means, punish me, for I deserve it. William Plumer says it this way. He claims, let infamy cover me and let my memory rot. If I am the man, I am said to be. Oh, he stands for God's righteousness. Let me pause here for just a moment. We oughtn't do this very lightly, should we? I don't know when the last time a child looked at a parent... Oh, far be it from me, lest I am the child you have spoken of me as. Not simply would that be weird, but they would just be wrong, most likely, wouldn't they? We are often exactly the person people say we are. Are we not? I'll tell you what, very few times, if ever in my life, have I come to a quarrel Yet, where someone has hurled an insult or a critique at me, and I haven't been able to find a good amount of truth in it. Found myself needing to still be living in continual repentance. 
Lord forbid we make such a mistake as Peter in his denial of Christ and call curses down upon ourselves only to be found guilty of the very things we swear we are not and have great need for shame and weeping. Lord forbid us to call a curse down on the thief and murderer of a sheep as David did only to have the prophet look at us and say you are that man. David stands clean of conscience. And we can learn here that that when the world curses who those in Christ are, we have a call to ensure that we are indeed innocent of these charges. But let's make it very clear. Just because we are not aware of sin that we have committed does not mean that we are innocent of it. In fact, several times throughout the Psalms, David will plead the Lord to reveal his sin to him. Even Paul, the least of the apostles, when being slandered and accused, says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 4-5, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. You see, Paul knows that he is innocent of the charges that are brought against him. And he's honest enough to say that they are untrue. But he wants the Corinthians to know that it is not because he does not feel guilty that he stands acquitted. It is not his clear conscience that stands him innocent. Rather, he wants the audience to understand the only way to know true sin and innocence is not by how I feel, but how God has spoken in His Word. Have I found hope in what God's Word tells me to hope in? Not hoping in the fact that I prayed the right prayer, or said the right words, or had the right feelings after a sermon or a song. Have I put my faith in the Son of God, believed upon the Lord Jesus, and walk in repentance continually before Him? Oh, how many consciences go happily, dulled, blinded, and seared unto the grave, only to awaken to their makers and cry out, Lord, Lord, to hear the crushing words, get away from me. I never knew you. David here does not claim absolute innocence before the Lord. But he has made quite certain that he is not being wronged because he has deserved it or earned it. For as Peter says, what credit is it due if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. David here can find refuge in the Lord because he stands innocent of the charges facing him. So David calls upon the Lord's judgment. You see, David knows that there is no less zeal in God to defend his own oppressed people than there is malice in the wicked to wrong them. Therefore, he calls out in verse 6, Lord... Pardon. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself 
up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. So he's put his hope where it belongs. He cries out for deliverance. He appeals his innocence. And now he pleads for God's judgment. David begs the Lord to no longer allow his child to dangle helplessly from the mouth of a ferocious lion as it tears his soul to tatters. David knows that it is the glory of God to help the helpless. He says, you have appointed a judgment. David is comforted in his affliction because he knows there is a coming judgment day. David may very well know that his accusers may never cease their slander. He may know that once an upright name is sullied, there is never a way to get it fully cleared. Like getting toothpaste back into its original tube. Any attempt to fix the mess instead often will spread it further. We may know, he may know, There will be no peace on this side of glory. So what is it that David wraps himself in for the journey? What is it that he finds to be his refuge? God has appointed a judgment day where he will make all that is crooked straight. He says in verse 8, The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. David's accusers may be loud, Cush may be relentless, but David stands before one judge. He does not merely stand as a judge who will hear a case of testimonies and give his best guess at a fair trial. This judge is he who tests the hearts and minds of men. You see, God is not like a man who judges in a limited understanding. He knows not only my thinking, but my deceitful desires and my manipulative self-deceptions. David here has... A significant boldness, does he not? Once again, David is not claiming his own self-righteousness before the Lord. In many other places throughout the Psalms, we see him weeping, begging for forgiveness of sin, exposure for sins that he doesn't know about, but he knows that he stands innocent of Cush's curses. And yet, interestingly enough, We see that David's call for vindication is not impassioned by a personal vendetta and by revenge. But rather, it also includes a good for his people's spiritual state. He says in verse 7, Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. Verse 9, Oh, let the wicked, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, even in David's cry for God's righteous judgment. It is not fueled only by his comfort and desire, but by a passionate desire for God's glory and the defense of God's people. Alistair Begg says it this way, When God brings us to see sin as it is, we lament 
all sin. We lament it because it displeases God. You see, a godly man laments not merely those sinful acts which personally annoy him and those close to him. He hates all sin, especially his own. Do I get as angry at my sin against the Lord as I do those who sin against me? Do I perhaps have yet to truly see sin as God does? Am I possibly just annoyed by sin when it affects me and what I want out of life? Oh, I for one, I am written here. Oh, Lord, bring my heart to you. Next, David proclaims his confidence in God's righteous judgment. Verses 10 through 17. We hear now David's tone shift. He's been pleading for the Lord to come, but now he begins to proclaim. There is a confidence here in the righteous judgment of the Lord Most High. This is a confidence that we will see is in fact rooted in his understanding of who the Lord is. And so what he will do over the next verses is he will give us three descriptions of who God is that allows David to take refuge in him. He says this in verse 10, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Who does David see God to be? God is David's shield. He is his protection and his mighty defense. The Lord is not some helpless hopeful who stands far back and prays that his people will turn out all right. This is the sovereign Lord. The one in whose hands is all of my days. Not a hair might fall from my head, lest his hand, out of love, bring it about. Oh, David knows who his God is. And he takes refuge in him. Why? Because he is a shield. Nothing may come to him unless it first passes through his strong defender's hands. Cush can do his worst with his slander. He can drag David's name through the proverbial mud. Cush can be a scourge and a toxin to man's opinion of him. But David knows who it is that delivers the one with the upright heart. Even if it does not come until the day of judgment. The second description of who God is. He is a righteous judge. Verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Now there is a Bible verse that you will not see on the Bible app's short list of the verse of the day. There is a verse that you probably don't have written on a sign hanging in your living room. That is most likely not our favorite thing David has said today. We don't often like to think about this, about what David says, but take note here. David finds great joy in this fact that God is a judge. Not simply a judge, but a righteous judge. And this righteous judge is marked 
by a continuous anger. The word every day here is equivalent to all the time or unceasingly. One theologian says it this way, because the wicked are always wicked and because God is always holy, therefore his relation to them is ever one of opposition, of threatening, of anger. You see, David is is beginning to no longer just call for God's judgment, but in fact he's taking now a step to begin loving his enemy by speaking the truth to all who would hear. You see, he begins to proclaim why it is that the Lord is such a refuge to him. Fear not, says David, O you who are slandered for loving the Lord and living faithfully according to his word and not according to your own sinful heart. Why fear not? Because God is a judge. He is far more angry than you could ever be with the sin that ravages his world. Because God is a judge, he is angry. And therefore those who are upright in heart can take refuge in him. Be sure of this. Is the Lord patient? Oh, utterly. Is the Lord loving? Oh, goodness, yes. He is, in fact, the definition of love. And because he is love, we must know he is angry. Always. Charles Spurgeon had a similar desperation in his heart to see sinners saved as David did. Therefore, as Charles Spurgeon seeks to help the unrepentant see their dangerous situation, he says this, God not only detests sin, but is angry with those who continue to indulge in it. There is not an hour in which God's oven is not hot and burning in readiness for the wicked. Goodness me. Can you believe that a preacher would be willing to preach such a thing? I have a feeling that that isn't anybody's vote for the next Rocky Point church t-shirt slogan. (laughs) Can you believe that a man would be willing to say such a thing? Well, I certainly can. Because it's what God just said about himself. The righteousness of God and the goodness of God in a sin-ridden world, demands his anger. How many thousands of women, children, and civilians are filling the mass graves in Ukraine right now? How many children are being neglected, abused, and misled this very moment? How many loved ones are forced to watch those they care for being drawn away by death's cold, dark grip. Oh, praise God, we have a righteous judge. One who feels indignation every day, who has appointed a judgment day. Thirdly, David gives us a description of God here. I believe one pastor says it best when he summarizes David's description. He summarizes it as this, God is a warrior. Verses 12 And 13, if a man does not repent, 
God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Yikes, David. Can you cool down a bit? He says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. Here we see that the Lord God is depicted as an executioner. One who stands at the ready with a sharpened blade. That when the moment comes, there ought need be no hesitation. This is graphic. This is hard to swallow. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. At the beginning of the psalm, David felt as though he were the hunted prey of a lion. Hunted for the purpose of ripping him limb from limb. But now we see from the refuge of his God, David calls out a warning to all who might hear. Cush, my friend, it is you that are hunted. The Lord's arrows are notched. The string is drawn back. The aim is fixed upon your soul. O you who will not relent. O if you are not in Christ, know this. God's mercy is upon you this moment. For he restrains his wrath toward you. At any moment should the Lord express the anger that burns within. If all he should do is relax his hand from restraining, then any who are not redeemed by the blood of Christ shall awaken, struck down with no chance to turn back. Luther says of this verse that David uses a gruesome human example in order that he might inspire terror into the ungodly. Why would David do this to his audience? Why would he put this in such a beautiful book as the Psalms? We can be assured it is out of love. He does not sit idly by as Jonah and await God's fiery vengeance. Rather, he turns to those who chase him and cries out, Repent, repent, repent! For those who do not take refuge in the Lord will only ever flee from safety and pursue their own destruction. He proves it in verses 14, 15, and 16. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. David makes crystal clear the heart of the natural man. He seeks to show through graphic imagery and unrestrained honesty the state of men who will have no grace or lordship from the Most High, though he offers it. It reminds me of an old king named Dionysius. This great tyrant, Dionysius. One day he wished to teach one of his flatterers, Democles, I think is how you pronounce it, about what it meant to feel the weight of being the king. So what he did is he called Democles into his private chambers. 
and he dressed him in his own royal robes. He, he brought him before the royal table and put before him the royal evening feast with any food and drink that he could possibly imagine. He brought in the dancers and the king's choirs to have them perform their finest songs and dances for him. Yet before all of this, Dionysius the king took a single strand of hair from a horse's tail. And he tied it to an unsheathed sword and hung it over Democles' head at the table where he sat. Though the flatterer had all he could ever want or hope at his beck and call, the finest of all pleasures and delights available to him, yet he couldn't enjoy an ounce of food or a sip of drink or a note of melody. For above his head hung at all times his sudden and impending doom. Finally to his servant Dionysius said this, Were you to know the weight of the crown I wear on my head, you would never stoop to pick it up. So it is with David as he cries to the righteous judge. Then cries out to all who may hear, Look up. You seek to crown yourself king, but if you will not repent, you bring no crown upon your head, but your own destruction. Oh, might we glean wisdom here. Have you turned to the one who took a crown of thorns upon his head, that you might throw any crown you may claim at his feet? Have you taken refuge in him who can make your heart upright? Is this you who hides in him as a refuge? Or does David describe where you still stand today? Rejecting the grace of the angry, loving judge. Do you find refuge in his righteousness and lordship? Or do you seek to slink from it into the shadows? Possibly not to shake your fist at him, but certainly not to bow under his almighty shield. May I just lovingly say, if this be you, know you stand in grave danger of your own self. Would you run to take refuge in God? Hear the loving and merciful call of an angry God. We see right there in verse 12. God's restraint of his wrath is a mercy meant to lead us to repentance. Oh, for the one that he took aim at, the one in whom the fiery arrow plunged was not the wicked, but the only one upright heart, the only man who has ever been David has given us three descriptions of who the Lord is that allows him to take confident refuge in the Lord. And what's amazing is that in verse 17, he speaks as if the Lord's protection is already done. He says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. He speaks as if the Lord has already saved him from the slander of Cush. 
And now he is able to sing to the Lord of his righteous judgment. The refuge of all who will hide in him. As we read this psalm, can you see it? Can, can you not help but see as the slander borne by David? Can you help yourself but see a king who would follow after him? You see, there would be a great king to come after David, one who would not merely be guiltless, guiltless before the slanders of man, but one who would stand guiltless in the very presence of God himself as angels sang to him, Holy, holy, holy. He would be the one who at all times perfectly was living to please the Most High God. He knew no sin, yet he was slandered mercilessly. This is in fact often mentioned as one of the bitterest ingredients in the Savior's brimming cup of sorrows. Those against him would say he served the devil, while truly it was they who were the children of him. They said he broke the law when he came to perfectly fulfill the law. They sneered at him, oh, the depths of the atrocity. They sneered at him as he hung there on the cross, and they called, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down. All the while he remained upon that cross, for he came to save not his own life, but theirs. And can we not like the centurion who stands viewing all of these events take place? Can we stay the same when we understand? When Christ takes a rebel against God and grants them his righteousness and exchanges their death for his life, when one receives the gift of Christ's righteousness, a new heart, a perfect standing before the righteous judge. Oh, friends, when Christ reveals to you who he is, you cannot stay the same. The only logical life for those who have seen this slandered Savior is the life of repentance and faith. All through Psalm 7, we see his cries the cries of our forebrother David indeed, but do not miss who this speaks of. For as the entirety of the Old Testament points directly to the Lord Jesus Christ, either as he experienced life or as he speaks on our behalf as our representative head. Oh, we turn our eyes to a New Testament look at how to understand this psalm, and we find it in 1 Peter 2, 21-25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is but one refuge. 
He is the one who bore slander of sinful man that he might erase the true accusations of the enemy. He is the refuge. He is the shield of all who are found bearing his righteousness, having died to themselves and raised with Christ to new life. We indeed do have a roaring lion on the prowl of our own, do we not? One whom seeks for those that he might devour. He is a shield. He is a judge. He is a warrior. Though the world is filled with tumult and destruction, though verbal abuses and slander are unending toward those who live by the word of God for his glory. Will you take refuge in him? You who have found refuge in Christ, will you sing praise to the Lord Most High through trial and slander? For he is a righteous judge. David Dixon says it beautifully this way when he says, When our enemies are desperately malicious and nothing can mitigate their fury, let the consideration of God's justice Mitigate our passion. Oh, when you are slandered, where do you run? Oh, when David was slandered, where did he? A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Father God, we come before your psalm that you have led us to by your providence, and we pray that we understand it rightly. Not that we ever cry out for your judgment against others. As if we do not first earn it in our own walk. Oh, Father, would those who are here not in you, would they hunger for your shield to be about them? Would they hunger not for your righteous judgment, but for your righteous stay of judgment? Lord, as you hold in derision all who would hate you, you call to them still by mercy. We have an angry God who cries in a loving heart to those whom deny him. Oh, Lord, would you turn those of us who are not in Christ Oh, would you turn us to your mercy. 
to hunger for your righteousness as you have struck the righteous one. As we see the pinnacle of your anger and your justice, your goodness and your wrath at the pinnacle, bearing upon the shoulders of Christ Jesus, the righteous. Father, would we bow beneath him in need of his mercy. And those of us already received his mercy by your grace, would you bow us again at the slanders and trials of the wicked. And Father God, might we be as David. May we be as Christ. Not reviling in return, nor seeking our own vengeance, but Lord, entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly, living not for this day, but the day of judgment that comes. Lord, might we take solace in the comforting words of those martyrs who plead under your throne. How long, O Lord, might we take solace in your merciful cry? Not yet, for I have more to redeem. Oh, Lord, as those who have been redeemed, would you bend us to pour out love to those whose sword is dangling upon their own heads. And Lord, might we never lose sight of the reason why it is not dangling over ours, for it has been pierced forever broken into Christ on our behalf. Lord, we come humbly before you as we prepare for the Lord's Supper and we pray your blessing upon this time. Amen.